Please turn with me to Acts chapter 17 as we continue our study in the book of Acts. We've almost been 30 weeks in the book of Acts, if that seems reason, if that even seems right. It's crazy how fast time flies. We will be looking at Paul's time in Thessalonica and in Berea today. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would use it to strengthen our weak hearts, our hearts that struggle sometimes in our faith, in our day-to-day life. We struggle to see the things that you're doing. Maybe it's because of opposition. Maybe it's because of just the doubts that we have, the mental doubts, the spiritual doubts, the struggles that we see all around us. And so, Father, we pray that you would focus us, that you would, Lord, help us to see your word anew, that you would teach us from it, convict us of our sin, that we might be closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I read through this <clears throat> passage today, there's, there's a lot here about the, the scriptures and about the truth therein and about how we use the, the text of scripture in our ministry. And it made me think of just the church today and some of the turmoil that's going on in the church. A very prominent megachurch pastor was recently preaching through Acts 15, which is something that we just preached through here. And he suggested that one of the applications of that passage was that we must, and his words were, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. So, of course, that you know rose my eyebrows. He has since doubled down on that even. It wasn't just a kind of a slur, but he just doubled down on it, suggesting the church should really only focus on the New Testament. And in that even, that we should really only focus on the resurrection of Christ, which that's of course not bad. It's a primary issue of our faith. But he's saying that that should really be the only issue of our faith. All other issues are non-issues, including whether or not Scripture is the sole authority for faith and practice, whether or not Scriptures are God's Word, or just some of them are God's Word. It's kind of what he's suggesting. These are unimportant things. We only need to do talk about the resurrection So he relies on the scripture to support the resurrection of Jesus, but doesn't affirm that the scriptures are God's word. He's really got himself in an odd place there as a pastor, as a preacher of God's word. The church has largely allowed the Bible to take a back row seat. Instead, we've embraced ideas that are much more based on feeling and acceptance and tolerance and these sorts of things. When faced with questions about what the Bible teaches, rather than reason and explain and prove as we're going to see in our text today we simply dismiss and we focus on the positive things another tv pastor he said that i just try to focus on lifting people up i choose not to dwell on issues that divide so he along with many many pastors in churches across our country have laid down the truths of the reformation placed their tail between their legs, and they're kind of bowing to culture. Well, this is kind of what we feel, so that's okay. Rather than stand for truth, they just pretend. 
Rather than stand in the face of opposition, they turn around and they become those who oppose the truth themselves. In our text today, we'll see the Apostle Paul and others reasoning from the Scriptures with the people there in Thessalonica and in Berea, cities in Greece. And he's doing so in such a way that it upsets many of the people who are listening. But for many others, his words are the words of life. And they turn to Jesus for salvation. I think we'll see first and foremost how we too should do this. Reason and explain and prove the scriptures. But second, we're going to see how this type of presentation will cause division. But it's the kind of division that Christ said would come. And so with that, I want to consider three ideas from the text. The necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. The presentation of the scripture. And then the response to the gospel. And so with that, please stand with me as we read from God's Word. So let's read the text, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason as, as, and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by the night to Berea. And when they had invade, er, arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for, for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So there's a, a lot here, but there's a couple of main ideas that I want to touch on. Just a little bit of a background before we get started. A few words on the cities that they're in. Thessalonica 
was and really still is a big port city in northern Greece. Today, it's actually the second largest city in Greece. It's a really big place. At the time of Paul's visit, it was a city of approximately 200,000 people. It was the province or the capital of the province Macedonia. So you can see why Paul would have chosen this place to go. Berea was a much older city than Thessalonica, more established And at this point in history, actually Berea had kind of reached its peak as a population and culture and all these things. And now it's about the size of Paducah, Berea is. And it's not even, it's called something else. I forget the name. Both of these cities, though, have extensive biblical significance. And with Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which which Todd read from this morning, probably being the first letter that he wrote, Uh, which is called part of the New Testament. And so very significant part of his ministry. These stops in Paul's second journey, they differ quite a bit from one another, but there are lots of similarities. Next, we're going to see him stop in Athens. Well, he kind of was made to go to Athens, and he's going to quote there, as he's in Athens, from many of the modern writers. And he uses even an idol that's present there to illustrate the gospel to them and to present the gospel to them. As we look at today's text, however, it may seem like the two methods of presentation are completely opposite from one another because in today's text, they're looking exclusively at the scriptures, but they don't. I think we're going to see that Christ, as we look at next week's time in Athens, is the center at both and how Paul's exegesis of his audience in all three of these instances is masterful. I strongly encourage you as we prepare, as we look through Thessalonica and Berea today, to go ahead and read the rest of 17 to prepare your hearts and your minds for what's going on there in Athens. A very important text of Scripture, perhaps probably the most important text on how we as Christians should share our faith with a lost world today. And so let me strongly encourage you to begin studying ahead. But today we have this text ahead before us. The first 15 verses, and so the first point is the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So again, Paul finds the synagogue, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what did he do? He showed them why it was necessary that Christ must suffer and die and rise from the dead. And so before we look at how we should present this information, it is very important for us to establish the thing that he did there in Thessalonica. Why is it necessary that Christ should die? Why is it necessary that he should be risen from the dead? These truths are escaping much of the church today. And we, brothers and sisters, will not let that happen. So let's ask ourselves these these questions. If you ask the average believer why Christ had to die, what are they going to say? Many of them are going to say, because of my sin. A very good answer. Or something to that effect. If you ask, why did he have to be resurrected? You might get a blank stare. 
because so many times the resurrection has become something that we talk about at the same time that we're talking about coloring eggs and bunnies coming to our house bringing presents. We have so associated the resurrection with the holiday of Easter that we neglect to talk about it the rest of the year. And thus, most of the the church has no idea why it's important other than that it happened. And so I think it's very important for us to talk about it. So, from the Bible, why did Christ have to die? I'm going to kind of give a summary of that. We're going to look at a few texts specifically, but you can go all the way back to the garden. Genesis 3, as I like to do, talking about what happens there in Genesis, where man sinned. And from that sin, he cursed not only himself, but all mankind, the entire world, to sin and death. How do you know? Well, you just keep reading. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You see how God had a temporary plan for man to temporarily appease for his sin through the sacrifice and through the blood of animals. But there was no real remission of sin. The people continued in sin. How do you know? Read Joshua. Read Judges. They don't get better. They get worse. Time and time again, they fail to meet up to God's standard. And those sacrifices that they're making, that they're very good at making, they become a very religious group. But they're not good at turning to idols, even in the midst of doing those sacrifices. As you read through the book of Ruth, First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you see how even the people's desire for a king and to have this chosen royal line wasn't the answer because it was a human king that they sought after. Sin and death were still very much a part of God's people. Just read about the kings. And he died is a very prominent three words. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. What did the people think that they wanted? Just bring us back to our homeland. Then we'll be restored. We'll build the temple again. Then our worship will be restored. Is that what happened? No. Sin and death still reigned. They needed a Savior. And that Savior couldn't be a mere man because they had proved over and over and over again that man is incapable of following God. Even the best men continued to fail. And if you want to just see a picture of that, well, you can go back to the first human saver, Noah. He built an ark, saved some people, and then immediately sinned as soon as he got off of it. And ever since then, that has been the case. History has proved that those saviors that are temporary don't work. Isaiah gives us a great look into the necessity of a savior. Turn me to Isaiah 6. I think Isaiah 6, the second half of it, really sums up the need of a Savior perfectly, starting at verse 9. And he said, Go and say this, go and say that to this people, God saying this, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate, and the land is a desolate waste, 
and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Even in the midst of this desolation, there's a promise, is there not? The seed that was prophesied from of old to crush the head of the serpent all the way back in the garden. Here we have in Isaiah, telling me a couple pages to chapter 9. There has to be a Savior, but that Savior can't be man, just mere man, but He has to be man as well to right the wrongs of man. Look at verse 6. Unto us a child is born. A child, a human child. A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. This isn't any mere human. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child that would be born would be called Mighty God. So it wasn't no mere human, but he was also God as well. Isaiah 53. Turn with me there. I'd love to read the whole chapter this morning. But look with me at verse 11. Again, the whole chapter is worth your study. But I think verse 11 sums up the necessity of this child's death, which Isaiah 53 is about why this child must suffer. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What will he do, this suffering servant? He will bear my iniquities. He will ensure that I become righteous. Why did Jesus have to die? Because he, because we, you and I, deserve the wrath of God, and God desired to save us. Those two things cannot exist together. So in order to do this, His law had to be followed perfectly. And the wrath due to those lawbreakers from Adam through the rest of us had to be satisfied. Both of those things had to happen, and they did in Jesus Christ. And we explain that from the Old Testament, just like Paul did that day. Why did he have to be risen? Again, back to the garden. Man who was supposed to live forever is condemned to die. Something is broken. Through that condemnation, the earth was sentenced to death. Slowly, all of creation began to suffer, began to long for that thing which it had. Death has a hold over creation, over all of creation, all of it. In God's created order, this could not stand. So God, from the foundations of the earth, made a plan for redemption to save his people, to save his creation. Not only would he take the sins away, but he would take death away as well. Turn with me to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 
Isaiah is almost cheating. It's almost like having the New Testament inside the Old. But Paul had Isaiah right there before him on those days, rest assured. Isaiah 25, look with me at verse 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, an aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and reproach of his people will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Who is the God that Isaiah speaks of here? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And how could he do that? How is he going to defeat death? Is he going to push a button? No. He's going to come and he's going to do it personally. Showed us a picture in Ezekiel 37. You don't have the turn there, but in Ezekiel 37, the Spirit of God breathed on the dead, dry bones and they became alive. And then, of course, the Spirit of God, when Jesus lay in the tomb for three days, the Spirit of God breathed the breath of life onto him and he became alive. And then Paul in Romans 8 writes, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. That same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the promise that we have as well. In His resurrection, we are given new life, the promise for eternal life. We're delivered from the place where the worm never dies. is what Jesus says of hell. The worm never dies. We're delivered from that to the place where moth and rust do not destroy. If we are headed to a place where there is no sin and death, then sin and death have absolutely zero power over us on this earth. None. This is why he had to die. This is why he had to be risen. And Paul showed them from the scriptures, he had the Old Testament, just like we've seen this morning, the same truth. Brothers and sisters, let us be people who never forget this truth. Not only that, let us be people who continually study this truth because we need it. And those we talk to need it. This is the only thing they need, actually. If the things that we're giving them aren't based on this, then we're giving them things that fail. Everything that we say to them, everything we do to them has to be rooted in this truth. In all we do, let us be ones who show this truth. How do we do it? Paul shows us this. Back to Acts 17. Next, the presentation of Scripture. Look at verse 2 again. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on the three days, or three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So we see that he reasoned with them. He explained to them. He proved to them. These are very specific words in the original language, and I want to spend some time with them because I think it's 
helpful for us to kind of see what he what this means. We might brush over these and just kind of think think of them because think about the word explain. Can you can you define explain? We need to look at that. First, he reasoned. The original word here is where we get our word dialogue. He literally dialogued with them. The word can be literally translated getting a conclusion across to them. When we dialogue, we do so with the conclusion in mind. When I talk to someone about Christ, obviously I mean to bring them eventually to Christ, but we also do this with the other person in mind. Absolutely. We aren't talking in a vacuum, but instead we are attempting to reason with a person to show them the truth that we have. Many times this will involve understanding that person's truth as well. Even though we don't agree with it, regardless of what we think, we should understand at least where they're coming from. If not, we can't really have a dialogue with them. For Paul, reasoning with the Jews meant understanding the Jewish position, which of course Paul did very well. Not bowing to it by any means, not bowing to it, but applying the truth of Scripture to it. You can't apply the truth of Scripture to something you don't understand. What does this look like today? Well, the next few weeks, I think we'll really put some more meat on this idea as we look at the rest of Acts 17, because I think that's what he shows us in, in the rest of this chapter. But consider that context and show Christ. Consider the context of where you're at and show Christ in the midst of that. This means we seek to understand things rather than to simply dismiss them. How can you have a discussion, for instance, about science and evolution unless you don't understand it yourself? It's not easy. How can you dialogue with a homosexual individual unless you understand where they're coming from and learn from them? How can you share Jesus with a Muslim family if you don't know anything about Islam? You can't do it. You can't, and if you try, you'll come across as an enemy rather than a friend. And so when we dialogue, remember the enemy is sin and death, not your neighbor. The enemy is unbelief, not the person sitting, person sitting across from you. We must be faithful to love our neighbor as ourselves as we talk to them. Secondly, he explained to them. The Greek word here literally means to open all the way across, to completely lay it open. Has the idea of seeing something for the first time too. Kind of like emerging and seeing something for the very first time. The first time you really ever understood something. This past week at school, I was explaining a concept called the polarity of water. And maybe you know what polarity of water is. Maybe you don't, but it, you'll, you'll get the... I'm not going to explain polarity, but I'm going to explain what happened. And the way that I did this, I started from a very basic concept that every upperclassman in high school should understand. A basic chemistry concept... And I began building on that. As I was approaching the part where I was going to say, and this is just like the polarity of water, a student who was one of the brightest kids in the whole building audibly gasped, like just like he just had this moment, eureka moment. And he said, oh, the polarity of water, like for the first time. I've had this kid multiple times. He's had every chemistry class we offer in the building. But for the first time, he got it. The polarity of water made sense to him. He got it. So much so, I believe now that he could come in here and explain it to you, and you might get it. Like he owns it that much. 
Do you know your faith that way? Backwards and forwards. Are you able to explain it to folks so that they would have that moment and say, that makes sense. It's important for us. It takes practice. It takes more than a few tries to get this right. Paul was there for weeks explaining to the Thessalonians the truth, the ideas that why Christ had to be, had to die, why he had to be risen. They needed help understanding these things. Sometimes it takes many, many, many times of saying the same things over and over for it to finally make sense. This is explaining. Let us endeavor to be ones who know our faith so well that we can adequately explain it to others. Multiple ways if we need to in order so that it makes sense. So much so that it's opened up before them. It's like hearing it anew for the first time. And third, he proved it to them. It says he proved it. This goes hand in hand with the word explain. It literally means to set out before someone as you would someone coming to your house and you would set food before them on a table. That's literally what's going on here. You have opened it up all the way and now you're going to set it right there before them. This isn't a mere academic explanation, but a very intimate presentation that's being talked about here. You're right there beside them, literally showing them bit by bit. This part is hard for some of us. I think especially for me. When we get something, we want others to get it as easily as we think we did when we first got it. Well, this made easy sense to me. We forgot the struggle that we had. We forgot all the learning and the effort that we put into it. We don't want to afford others that same amount of effort. As we share our faith with others, sometimes it's going to be a process. Most of the time, we have to lay it all out before them over and over. We're going to have to walk alongside them over and over. Let us not forget the times that someone did that very same thing with us. I'd even go so far as to say that you're, if you're currently not having someone show you often these things and be teaching you, more and more and opening it up for you and showing these things then your ministry is probably going to be less than adequate because you're not also going to be able to do that when we are learning as often as we are teaching and showing we become more effective ministers of the truth of the gospel showing people the truth about Christ that brings us to the last point the response to the gospel We can't control the response. We can only control the presentation. Paul does that. He presents the gospel. Here, many believe, many don't. And so I want you to notice these two responses that he has. Belief and unbelief. Belief can be immediate, as you see there, but it can be drawn out. Unbelief can be the same way. Look at verse 4 for for belief. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many a great and devout of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so you have these important people that are convinced of the truth. It seemed real simple. For others, look at verse 11 in Berea. Now these Jews were no more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
these folks had to check it out for themselves. They had to examine the Scriptures. Paul, is this, I'm not real sure here. Let me, let me figure this out. This is great, by the way. This is something that we all should be doing all the time. You should be doing this. Don't ever let me become someone who just says something without backing it up. Hopefully you guys would check me on that, confront me if I'm saying something that doesn't align with Scripture. Hopefully that's, that would be the case. But how did unbelief show up? In this passage, it showed up very violently. They formed a mob, and they ran them out of the city. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. As we've seen all through this book, they're jealous. Taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, and they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. Apparently, Jason was, was keeping them, and they caused this entire uproar there. And then the apostles fled to Berea, and the naysayers followed. Caused an uproar there. Paul had to escape to Athens. Silas and Timothy stayed there in Berea. They saw the gospel as a direct assault on their own beliefs. And this is good. When the truth of Scripture is neither peace to the believer, or when the truth that's being preached, I should say, Scripture is always these things, but when the thing that you're saying is neither peace to the believer or reviled by the unbeliever, it's probably not the truth of Scripture. It's some sort of middle ground garbage that doesn't have any value at all. The Scriptures will always divide belief from unbelief every single time. There is no middle ground. You see that very clearly here in this passage. That doesn't mean that we have to be mean about it at all. You don't have to be mean. You could just stand up and read these words and people would get upset. It's not your words, it's the words of God. In fact, we must be humble when we handle truth like this. We have to be humble. You can't just, you know, Paul calls it the sword. We can't just go around slinging the sword around. We have to be careful. It's a weapon. It divides. But we do have to wield it. We have to be humble and loving, lest we become like the ones who revile the truth, which is really easy to do. In our humility and our love, we have to speak the truth. So in conclusion, let us be people who speak the truth, who hold the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the highest regard, as we do, as an absolute necessity for our salvation and for the salvation of the world. And let us be people who reason with others lovingly, who explain and prove from the Scriptures, bringing people along. And when opposition comes, let us be ones who stand for the truth. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we hear these words and as we see the Apostle and others, their teaching and and preaching and being with other believers and being opposed, I sometimes wonder where I would stand if I would stand with them or if I would stand against them. And so, Lord, I pray more and more that you would strengthen each one of us, that we would know your word so well that we would be able to do with Paul reason and explain and prove from the scriptures why you had to die, why you had to be risen from the dead. These are essential truths of our faith. But let us do so in humility and love. 
Your words will divide because they're Your words. But Lord, help us to be ones who love our neighbor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.